1: Hey,
2: dude! The '90s called, with Christine Taylor and David Lasher.
3: Hey, everybody! Welcome back to Hey, Dude! The '90s Called podcast. I'm David.
2: Hi, David. I'm Christine. How you What's doing, up, Christine?
3: I'm good. How are you?
2: I'm good. We've got we've got uh, two great guests in our waiting room, but I, I want to say one quick little thing before we let them in because I got the from one of our prior guests that we had on here. <laughs> A giant Dylan's candy bar bag of candy.
3: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she, she texted me the other day saying, did Christine get...
2: I have I... to write... A th- I, now I have to get her address and write a thank you because I can't even tell you what... you You know how much I light up talking about candy. So to come home <laughs> to a big... I mean, a blue bag like the size of this desk filled with one of those huge tackle boxes, the millennial oh, tackle yeah. box that we talked about, licorice. Gumballs. I mean, bags of things, and it. We demolished it as a family. Ella had some friends come over for a sleepover, so like it was perfect because I never would have wanted to to like, and I would have like totally hidden it and kept it for myself. I but just I picked on happy. it for like yes, six months. Totally, oh, uh, six months. Maybe try three. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't or take one, me Or one
3: night, one bad night.
2: Um, But it was the greatest surprise and she's so wonderful and wrote the sweetest message. So I, we'll talk after because I, I do want to send her a thank you. Yeah, I she'll be
3: so happy. Um, um,
2: But we have two incredible, incredible guests Um, in our waiting room.
3: Yeah, the musicians are like a, another level. I, we were just saying to each other that like when you grow up with music or you've – been into a certain uh, album, it's part of your DNA, right? So the people who wrote the music and performed the music, y- you feel like they were part of your life. And that's what, you know, I mean, Jim Sohnfeld from Hootie and the Blowfish and Edwin McCain... It's just, oh, this is a meaningful interview, Their songs,
2: their music. I mean, I can, I am already just the, the since we, since we were booking them there, I've been playing their music and their songs have been in my head. So I cannot wait to talk to them. Should we let them in, Jim and, and Edwin?
3: Yep, let's let them in. What's happening? How are you guys? We are good.
2: It is such a pleasure to have you both huge fans we are huge huge fans and it's always great for us as as you know we were two uh you know child actor i guess teen teen actors in the 90s but but we just love having musicians on because it's just such a fascinating world to us and especially at that time you know for you know this is a 90s podcast so we'll start there and then we'll talk about everything you guys are doing together now but um we're just huge fans and honored to have you here Oh, thanks for having
3: us. I mean, I, I I'm not surprised you're in the South because both of your music has such southern influence and I can see why you guys are friends, but let's just start with how did how did you guys meet? Uh and and how is your how is your friendship evolved?
4: <laughs> I I would say I'll start out and say my memory of this is well before stalking was stalking if you were in a band and there was another band that drew more people than you you would just kind of attach yourself creatively to their shows or hang out a little bit or see if you could get on a bill together and i think that's how i remember first meeting edwin is we we had just a a little bit of a following not much at all and and we saw him around doing the bar scene and we sort of you know found each other maybe in that way but once he attached Once we found out that we had a lot in common, we liked to party, we loved to write music, and we loved to travel, it was all done. We could do this for a
5: lifetime. That's an incredibly generous way of of absolving me of my level five stalker behavior.
3: Oh, wait, you were both stalking each other?
5: No, I was, by design, purely stalking them he's being way too, uh, way too modest. Um, I actually knew Darius and Mark from a place called Muldoon's. They did an open mic. They used to do open mic nights at this little bar called Muldoon's before, uh, Hootie was a band or before Sony was in the band. And then I got kicked out of Carolina after one semester, and I sort of wandered my way down to Myrtle Beach and down to Charleston, and then uh, ended up playing solo acoustic in Hilton Head. And by then, they had become pretty well known as a band, and I used to go see them play at this place called the Old Post Office. But in which city? Um, is, which city? In, in Hilton Head Island, oh. in South Carolina. And so that was when I, that was where I was putting in my ten thousand hours. <laughs> um, I was playing like ten shows a week, and when they would come through to play at the old post office, uh, occasionally Mark or Darius would come by the old po- or come by my gig at the Tiki Hut or whatever, and I would see them. But then I would go see them play at the old post office, and as you know, they they very quickly became of. Uh, well-known touring regional act, like touring all the way up to DC and, and doing, uh, you know, filling clubs all the way up the the East coast. And I I wanted to put together a band and get, you know, on board because people were, you know, it was, it was really happening for Dave Matthews and, and for, for uh, Hootie and my manager at the time, he and I were you know college friends, and I was like, well, we we need to play with with the guys in Hootie. They're the nicest guys. Their crowd is kind of they'll get what I'm doing. And so I just kind of like made myself uh, that you know, basically they were either gonna have to take me to open for them. Or just deal with me as a pest, <laughs> and I think they just decided it was easier just to let me open. <laughs> and it, but but it, you know it, our our personalities worked out great, and and they were really kind to me, and and you know we our music complements each other, and um, it just made sense. They were very very kind to me early, and well I. Early on, and to this day, honestly.
2: <laughs> well, you don't just let uh, a, a non-talented stalker groupie open for you. So, <laughs> I, I, you're, I think you're, you're maybe um, humbling yourself down a little bit too, because I, I mean, this sounded like this sounds I, like it was just sort of a meant to be.
5: I never said I was untalented, man. <laughs>
2: You
5: know, that's true. I'll just stand by. I'll tell
2: you how awesome I am. Don't worry. <laughs> we agree. <laughs> I love it. You were just sort of selling yourself as a stalker, and then I was oh, no, like, "Well, no, no, there, was, he also was, happens I was, I was to be a, a brilliant talented, musician."
5: I was a talented stalker. It worked.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. The best combination, right? The talented stalker, the oh, one yeah. who won't give up.
3: I was just oh, yeah. interested in who broke first. I didn't know which one of you. Uh, oh no, no, they,
5: they, there was. It it, it, and honestly, it was uh, Hootie. They, they, so, and I, I'm telling too much of your story, um, but they released a, an, an, an independent record called Coochie Pop and it sold 10,000 copies. And it was, you know, Katie barred the door after that, right? I mean, it was on. I mean, they, they had a huge following, a regional following. You got to think about this too. This is before the internet, and this is when we were doing like mailing lists on, in in spiral notebooks.
3: <laughs> like, oh my
5: and, god! Yes, yeah, so yeah no, old
2: school, right?
5: But but it was the songs, right? So they had they had the vibe, they had the songs, and it was the perfect antidote to the grunge thing, everybody was tired of feeling bad about themselves. And here comes this band that's fun yeah. and accessible and they're friends. And, and to be fair too, like in my, my estimation, I, my journey in music would have been considerably different if I didn't have them as sort of role models about how not to take this too seriously, because 20 22-year-old me wanted to be David Lee Roth, and I easily could have just let that go, let it run away, right? And, and they were so humble and kind and careful and, and uh, nice about uh, what they were doing. I couldn't help but uh, you know take the lesson, and, and it's really informed the way I work to this day
3: everybody's got mentors right and people that they yeah. they're on the heels of who inspire them and i just want to talk to jim about you know what Edwin was saying at the time in the 90s it was hip-hop it was grunge it was some really you know some um intense music and you guys came out and i'll tell you this it, the year your first album came out i had it on loop in my car and wherever I was. <laughs> and I loved it. I mean, and you guys had insane success with, you know, hold my hand, let her cry, only want to be with you. Um, But it, it was sort of like simplifying everything and bringing it back to this Southern pop kind of rock. And it was nothing that was being offered. But um how, how did your writing process come about and be becoming connected with the band and what was the height of of your success like because that that album was in, insane
4: yeah we i mean hootie and the blowfish were always just going to be the sum of dean Felber and mark Bryan and darius rucker and me that was that's all we could ever be so it didn't matter if we were if it was 1982 or 92 or 2002 right. We were the sum of kids that were sort of raised in the 70s by, you know, different parents, but in a similar era where, you know, classic rock slightly dominated. But uh, there was definitely the infusion for several of us with the Motown uh, style music, R&B from that era. And there was a, a whole prime country, you know, 90s country that was right in there hard when we were starting to write songs together. So it, it could have only been one thing. It, the fact that grunge was there and everybody was a little bit angsty and angry, that, that was just something that we rubbed against and it actually helped us because, right. gosh, what's best to be, but maybe a little different than what everybody's been doing for a few you're, years. You so we were the anti,
3: anti-grunge. <laughs> yeah,
4: and it wasn't because we hated grunge. We freaking love grunge. Right. We, we listened to Pearl Jam. We listened to Nirvana. So we just happened to be the sum of all our parts, which was ah about three or four chords and acoustic guitar, a message that's, you know, overtly poppy because, you know, several of us come from that school. But, you know, we were young, too. We we're just in our mid 20s. So we had that energy that sort of leaned us into R.E.M. and like the Ramones and some bands, The Jam, Joe Jackson. So we were kind of this big soup of stuff. And we spent five years honing that. So we had this great test market called the Southeast, which Edwin was in as well. We drove around in the van, we booked gigs and nothing better than just playing your songs, you know, in front of other people and seeing how they react. That's the best ever. And so surviving that five years were songs like Time, Only Wanna Be With You, Hold My Hand, Let Her Cry, I Go Blind. Songs like that. When we got to recording in LA for the first time in the spring of 94 to do crack review, we knew one damn thing. If we only had five songs, those were going to be the you know, the five we tried to get on there. And tried it tested. Yeah. So it, it ended up working. It, it it set us off on a course. We couldn't have imagined in a million years, but it was what we were hoping for. You get a chance to make a uh, uh, an album for Atlantic Records, you know, home of Ray Charles, Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. What are you going to do? You're going to put out the best stuff you can and just say some prayers, get on your knees, and say, <laughs> oh, "May the musical gods of this crap business called the music business be in our corner for a minute." And they showed up. Thank you.
2: Uh-huh. Wow, that's really incredible! And how long had you guys all been together as a band before the success? Really? Like, had you been was had it had been a few years?
4: Yeah, Edwin mentions yeah. that it goes all the way back to 86, 87, 86. when Darius and Mark are an acoustic duo called the the Wolf Brothers, and then uh, they—that's
5: uh, what it was called. I forgot okay. about that.
4: Yeah, they drag Dean Felber, who was in a band in high school with Mark, but didn't want to be in a band. again with mark or maybe just didn't want to be in a band they'd drag him in and another drummer called brantley smith and brantley lasts till graduation which is where i jump in and take brantley's place and we take a little turn towards more mid-tempo i was really influenced by prime country and classic rock so a song like hold my hand comes out of my fingers as opposed to some of the other influences the other band members had. And Wait, can
3: I just ask you, like, who, like, like Leonard Skinner, Eagles kind of stuff?
4: Yeah, I mean, so to be fair, everything I listened to did not directly influence my music. So Frank Zappa is never indicated in anything I've ever written. <laughs> but I loved Frank Zappa. But guys <laughs> like George Strait and like Travis Tritt and Barry Manilow—that's at the heart of what made. My heart
3: beat back oh,
2: when I was.
4: Four. Yes. Speaking Barry. A, a
2: <laughs> right, Christine
3: right. just perked up at <laughs> Barry.
2: Barry <laughs> oh, I man. get it. I get it. Yes.
4: So we, we keep, we write what we feel. Darius had a, uh, you know, an R&B background, but Darius grew up uh, a black guy in the South loving kiss. So that's a, a turn that no one would have expected. And he also loved country. And Mark was obsessed with college rock. He was a DJ at our WUSC in Columbia, South Carolina, Go Gamecocks. And he had all this stuff like Scruffy the Cat and the Replacements before they were breaking any bigger than they got. And so it was just a cool fusion of a bunch of different things.
3: Yeah, I feel like the Southern uh, music scene is a very collaborative place. Uh, my, My wife went to Tulane University and my daughter is there now. And there's a band called the radiators mm. dave Malone and and um, and Zeke and these guys and I remember I was doing a movie in Charleston and Jill took me to this little bar and she's like, "We're gonna see this band." And she's like, I actually know them. And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. And uh, uh, you know Dave Malone looked out into the audience and was like, "Oh, there's my girl, Jill London." Uh, and I was like, oh Jesus, you you all like know each other." And it seemed just like, um, um, I, and I've seen Dave and Zeke perform in, you know, at the Sanger Theater for the, um, you know, the Wait album, or these, these great musicians always come together and support each other. The fellowship we had, and I'll pitch this to Edwin because the fellowship
4: was quite vibrant in the Southeast too. We were hanging on the, the shoulders of Johnny Quest and of Dylan Fence and of Egypt and uh these bands that were along you know dc and virginia and north carolina and so this idea that we were learning from someone else we handed right down to edwin he just happened to be right in line with us along along the coast doing gigs just looking for some tidbit because there was nobody to call there was nobody nobody was connected to the business of music we just did what we could to play as much as we could write good songs and and get out there in front of people but edwin and us crossed paths and it really it was solidified then because we, we loved each other, we loved our styles, but Edwin has a whole other chain
5: of people that hung on to him as well through the, the years that followed. So I would say that about the, the thing that was different, uh, especially with the Southeastern music scene, is that we, we did have such a fellowship. And I remember the first time I got to LA and realized how competitive it was between the bands You know, there was almost animosity as compared to like in our friend group, if somebody got their gear stolen or somebody crashed their van, there'd be five bands offering gear and vans to help out. And, you know, when it wasn't competitive. We were all really supportive of each other. And there was a period of time in Charleston, there was a radio station called 96 Wave um, that was owned by... Just one family, right? And this is—it was an independently owned FM radio station that that was the soul of the city. It was the heart and soul of the city, and they would play regional acts, including all of us. They were playing our demo tapes when that would be unheard of, right? Like to have to basically have uh, local bands music being played on a, on a P one market FM station. And um, this, this, uh, the owner of the station was kind of, he was just one of these rebel guys that was like, yeah, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And because he did that, you sort of had the entire state rally around these bands. And so we, we sort of, we benefited from a period of time where it was before clear channel it was before the big conglomerates had sort of like, you know, bought up all the radio stations. You had these independently owned FM stations. You had a, a, a group of musicians and bands that were wholly supportive of each other. And you also had fraternities and sororities that would uh supplement our income so that we could afford to make it to the next club up the up the coast Like so col- we,
3: college kids
5: yeah so yeah. we were playing so the way the way you did it the way we all did it back then was we would play in fraternity parties sorority parties until we had enough money to go to winston-salem or go to texas or go to you yeah. know somewhere you know virginia beach or whatever and so you start running low of money. booking for fraternity gigs, sorority gigs, and and then you'd be able to fill the van up and get a hotel room or whatever. And um, and I remember this. You know, probably three months before the cracked review thing hit, we were all playing on campus at WNL University. It was like Dave Matthews, us, Hootie, oh my um, god, Jacko Pierce. And the grapes. Do you remember that? You remember that, Sony? And then literally three months later, they the Hootie's sold five million records and were playing in amphitheaters. Ooh, it was crazy.
3: It was that <laughs> fast. Wow. From a college fast. frat party I, to five million I, records.
5: I might be I might be speeding the timeline up, but it felt like it was three months. <laughs> it might have been six months. It might have been six months, but it was it was exceedingly shocking at how quickly their um their popularity blew up it was amazing yeah and i was you know i was i was on the ride so i was with them and you know we were uh, you know I, i i've never seen it since i mean i don't think anybody's ever broken that record right the amount of sales in such a short period. Well,
3: they had so many hits. You had one and then another and then another. Um, I mean, we had Adam Duritz on and he said sort of like the Counting Crows first album. Also, they had recorded so many hits. There were like three or four hit songs on that demo album. Um, But Jim, is that your memory that it all happened? You were from a frat party to selling millions of albums was pretty quick turnaround.
4: Yeah, we returned. We recorded Cracked Review in L.A in the spring of 94 so we had been playing for five six seven eight years up the clubs and we got big in, in a bunch of the clubs on the in the southeast and we're still playing parties because they they paid well and they uh, a lot
3: yeah <laughs> where, 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 <laughs> do frat, where, where do fraternity college kids get money to afford a, a, a real band
0: well the kids
5: the kids at w and l were loaded but <laughs> they would they would act like their own promoters, like or they were. They were. They would. They would charge money. Oh, there you go.
3: They yeah. were making. They were running little business.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah.
4: and they 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 end up funding studio time back when there was no uh, you know laptop computer studios. When you had to pay for a real studio, you play a couple parties and it funds gasoline, new tires, insurance, a batch of new t-shirts that you can upsell to your next crowd. And so it works. And then you do other gigs that are original gigs. But we went from recording Cracked Review. We were a baby band. There was no press in the studio. There was nobody that took pictures. The only pictures from Crack Review's recording session is some, I took about six pictures on a camera I had. And those are the only existing really photos that exist from that you know, gazillion selling albums. So we come back from recording it. We don't know any better. We're a working band. We go right back to the road. We see Edwin. We see Dave Matthews. We see everybody out there doing their club things. And the album drops uh, drops on the 5th of July. And it, 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 you know, doesn't make a big dent. It enters the top 40 at number 127. So we're we're going, huh. Well, we maybe had a little higher hopes, but we'll take the top 200. And after three months of, Kind of working our ass off at radio and using the machine of Atlantic Records, we were down to like between 150 and 200. We were going the opposite way until they got a hold of "Hold My Hand" and David Letterman heard it on a radio station. And said, "Why don't you guys get in front of our five million fans? We'll give you three and a half minutes and see how that goes." And that was the change. So it was, you know, that was from July to September that it went bonkers.
5: And and that week that y'all were on Letterman, every night, he would just look at the camera and go, hootie. He was just saying- I
2: remember that he loved saying hootie. I remember I that, loved I remember saying that. It. so and well. And I was just like, this
5: is this is amazing. And I, I'll, I remember, I know when I knew it was going to blow up big, I was on a ferry Coming back from playing a gig on Nantucket. And we were in our little white box truck. We had this U-Haul truck that we used to travel around in. And um, I heard it on a on a Massachusetts radio station. And I was like, they did it. They did it. I was like, because it was, you know, you could you would you could hear it in the Southeast and be like, oh yeah, okay. But not, you know, Massachusetts. No. They right. did it. Yeah, New England Island.
2: made it up to New England.
5: <laughs> I was like, they did it. I was like, they're, they're, it's done. It's a, it's a done deal now.
6: 18 plus
5: after two and a half
2: years he was cheating mm-hmm. while you were pregnant were pregnant yeah about 13 women mm-hmm. more it, like if i would have stayed married to max i think he would have cheated forever mm-hmm. it,
5: it was just it, it was just a toxic relationship michael cawson returns to wind down with Jenna kramer
1: wind down with Janet kramer and michael cawson
5: you don't want to miss this three-part reunion on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hearing you talk about the sort of unconditional support that you all had for each other, and then getting to LA and realizing that was not the norm. Like, there was a highly competitive market and people looked, I'm sure, looked for, for you to fail and not succeed. I mean, as actors, David and I have experienced that, you know, through we all, we all hate each other. And sh- but <laughs> that period of time, oh, you're terrible. I'm but joking. No, I'm joking. I, I feel like the what you had as as um, you know, experiencing the same thing. That is, it feels very, very special and so unique. And and even Edwin, just you describing hearing the song on the radio, like your joy. For your friends, it, like that's so cool.
5: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, well, it, it never happened. You got to think about that. Like as as southeastern musicians, the biggest bands that we know of from the southeast were like it was like the Almond Brothers, or you
3: know, Eagles. It, oh no, Eagles were California, right? No, okay. maybe
5: maybe maybe mm-hmm. widespread panic tom petty oh but it wasn't but here's the thing there there was no nobody i never had any idea any any inkling of being in the music business like the the biggest thing that would ever happen for us is we would get there was a there was a, a miller genuine draft used to sponsor bands right and if you could be a Miller genuine draft artist, that was like getting signed to the biggest deal ever. And they would literally <laughs> like give you a trailer and 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 it but it would, you know, bands that were Miller genuine draft bands were legit in our book. Like they were legit touring artists. And so that was the way I was looking at it. The idea that that all of a sudden every major label in the country was going to descend on the Southeast after Dave Matthews and after Hootie broke, um, that was inconceivable. That wasn't a, that wasn't an idea that was ever in anybody's mind. Um, And I wouldn't have been able to, you know, the, the, you know, and they're not going to tell you this part of the story, but when Atlantic was coming after Hootie, they all said, well, We'll sign with you, but you got to sign him too. And know, <laughs> like talking about me. And which is are you crazy. serious? That's hundred percent.
3: That's and amazing.
5: I, I'm not. I'm not making that up. I remember when it happened. We were in. We were at uh, in a bar in the Virginia Highlands called the Highland Tap, and with uh, the AR guy that was signing them, and we were all in a booth. And I remember distinctly y'all telling him, "You need to sign him too."
3: Jim, is that, just, is that how you remember it? Did you really go to bat to, to get I mean, your buddy signed? That's sick. We,
4: we looked at it like we were getting pulled uh, you know, into a, a, a raft called uh, Heading to the Music Business. We were getting pulled from the, the clubs and the drags into something that could be legitimately career-changing, and we were trying to sneak people on the raft with us is what we were doing. Right. We were trying to
3: get – I know, but just know, so you know, not everybody does that a lot no, of I people right. a, a lot of people in our business are like I'm in you're, get away from me like I'm, yeah, I, I I made it yeah, yeah we we
4: we only had one experience uh, that would have in, illuminated the fact that maybe we did things differently you know in the southeast uh and there were competitive bands in the southeast it doesn't mean there there weren't but we did have a nice fellowship of guys that had the, the same thoughts, but we got some good advice when we are doing Cracked Review. The one famous guy that entered the scene uh, called David Crosby, who was with Crosby, Stills and Nash, had played Woodstock, <laughs> had done so many incredible, insane things. He comes in the studio one day because our producer knew him. And he said, let's get somebody that's recognizable to sing background vocals on a song. So Crosby sang on Hold My Hand. And he did it in five minutes. Of course, he's a pro. And he tried to get out of there, without a conversation we're like whoa whoa dude like <laughs> tell us oh majesty grant us exactly. a bit of wisdom Wait, and david crosby did.
3: sang uh harmonies with you on hold my hand
4: yeah yeah, under- big, yeah listen to those high soaring like insanely high like it could be shania twain high and it's david <laughs> crosby it's, oh my god so he tells us he says we said david you can't leave tell us something tell us What Woodstock smelled like? Tell us what we should think about. And he stops and he and I write this in a a book I put out last year called Swimming with the Blowfish in detail. I'll save you the gory details. But he says, you you guys better watch out. You're here because you love music. So you have music on one side. It's what makes you stay up late night writing lyrics. And it's all about just transferring that love in your heart into some melodies. And and don't ever forget that is precious. And that will, that's what got you here, and it's what's going to save you. He said, but there's this other thing, and it's a creepy pen-headed monster called the music business, and you better watch out for it because it'll chew your ass up, it'll spit you out, and you'll wish you'd never picked up a guitar in the first place. And we were like, damn, dude. Like,
6: <laughs> you uh, well, you asked
4: for it. <laughs> Wow. I mean, was scared, but that's what we needed to hear as guys that were just entering the music is that be careful. There is a lot of competitiveness. There's a lot of people reaching in your pockets. If you get lucky enough to have any money in your pockets ever. So that was the best advice we could have
5: had.
2: And Edwin, did you, did you end up signing with Atlantic based on yeah, that?
5: And actually kind of worked out perfectly because where I ended up was with a guy named Jason Flom, uh, who had a subsidiary label uh, called Lava. And it was a, it was an Atlantic offshoot and, and Jason and I are, are kind of totally kindred spirits because he's got this sort of, uh, I want to say uh rebellious streak and, and he, he's got a whole other story with Atlantic. Um, he, Doug Morris threatened to fire him if he said the name Twisted Sister ever again because he was working there as an intern. And he he went around Doug Morris, got Twisted Sister signed onto Atlantic through the London office, and then got to keep his job because it, it turned out to be a hit. But he was an intern when he did that. Like, so they were like, we can't have this guy in in atlantic proper so they stuck him in a different building with a different with his own label and he started signing all these like people like me that were not quite ready for prime time but that had a lot of hustle and it was me and jill so buell and uh kid rock and sugar ray and we were these it's this little all these little outcasts over in this little subsidiary label. And it turned out to be a perfect sort of storm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it it all worked out great. So Wait, that that
3: young intern signed all you and Kid Rock and Mark McGrath and Sugar Ray, that kid yeah. had some some he, he's got he had some good taste well more importantly than
5: that he actually co-founded the innocence project um getting wrongfully convicted people out of prison so he's he's gone on to even do greater things but he also wow. signed he signed lord um he, Katy Perry I mean he like his, his his he's got a great ear and and but but he's not for everybody either he's got this really intense personality he's extremely funny and he will not conform to you know any kind of general sensibilities so um uh he uh but he it it was a it was just kind of the perfect situation because i i wasn't on atlantic proper um and i I had to go I, i i sort of had to prove myself at the subsidiary label and go out there and do some hustling on my own to, to show that I belonged in the, in the world, you know? So I got that opportunity. So that was the, that was the, the trick, right? Like we got you here. Now you got to figure out how you can prove that you should stay. Like I snuck in the party. Now, (laughs) how do you, how do you stay?
2: Well, and how much longer after that did I'll Be come?
5: It was on my second record. And the truth about that song is they it was a half court hook shot at the buzzer because uh, Jason called me and said, look, I just left a department head meeting with Atlantic and they're talking about dropping you. Um, So whatever you turn in next needs to be great. And I was like, "Well, I got this one song. I think is pretty good." And but
3: no um, pressure, no pressure.
5: Well, and they
3: didn't. <laughs> oh my goodness, they didn't.
5: So what they did, and I can tell this story now because I think the statute of limitations has run out. But they only put it. They they when they weren't really trying to figure out if you were going to work or not, they would just throw things a little bit on the wall. Like for instance, like I wasn't supposed to have the. I had, I, I had gotten the conference call codes and I was listening in to the, to the company-wide conference calls just to figure out if I had a chance. And I did. I heard what they said about me. I was at the bottom of the list. They weren't going to do anything. They said, look, we're going to try this on three stations and if we can get something to happen, then we'll maybe turn up the juice a little bit. So they put it on three stations. in um, There was... Uh, It was in Mississippi and Alabama. It was Hattiesburg, Mississippi, Birmingham, Alabama, and like uh, Jackson, Mississippi. And so I called my manager at the time and I said, how much money do you have in your checking account? He goes, I don't know. I was like, well, we need I need every dollar you have. I'm getting every dollar I have. And we called all our college friends and we put together teams of people to go to these three cities and buy the records. And send them to us. Oh and my then,
0: gosh! That's, yeah. I always wondered
3: if artists do that no. to show yeah, no, that. I, oh my god No,
5: I I just had people, teams of people, <laughs> sending records. And back then, they would buy them. They go into the record store and go. I heard this song and blah blah blah. And they they buy the record and they go change clothes and come back in an hour later and do it again. And and because you couldn't buy lots of them at a time, and so then they would mail them to us and then we would sell them at our shows, but it would double the sale because the UPC code would count twice. Right. So we were essentially inflating our sales numbers, you know, because they had to see a spend to sale ratio and, And we, I spent every dime I had and it it was only going to last, like we only had about three weeks that it was going to, we could afford to do this. Right. But we hoped (laughs) that. Gambling at
2: all. Right.
5: So that three weeks was going to make it happen. Right. And in that time, Jason, my boss at Atlantic called me and goes, Jethro, you better not have your cousins in Alabama buying records. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, Oh yeah. (laughs) and and I don't have so, cousins in
3: Alabama
5: <laughs> so we, we got the needle to tick up just enough that that they they got Atlantic got the song put into a show called Dawson's Creek and it was in the finale of Dawson's Creek and
3: oh, the sales wow.
5: our our little artificial sales uh, went from you know 1200 a week to... 25,000 and we knew that the, the, the rocket had been launched, right? Like we knew we had finally gotten it off the ground. And the footnote to that story is, uh, a couple of years ago, I was playing golf with Jason. We're still friends. I still do a lot of work with him with the innocence project, but I was with him on the golf course and I was like, Hey man, I feel like I need to be honest with you about something. Um, remember when you asked me if my cousins were buying records? He goes, I knew it. I knew you were doing it. I knew it! <laughs> and uh, but it, it, was, it know, worked. Honestly, it worked. I you know. And like at, at the time, it was my last chance. It was like this is the last shot I have. I might as well leave it all out on the field. I I know the song was connecting with people. Now, did I n- ever have any clue it was going to be a twenty eight year? Juggernaut? No, I couldn't have told you that. The song just keeps going. So.
2: It keeps going. I mean, it is all, it all is the time. Beautiful,
3: lovesome.
5: It was on Jimmy Fallon this week. It's I mean, incredible
2: have, it's the way it has sustained and speaks to people in. and it's just a song that it stays in your DNA for, like, it's been in my head since I knew you were coming on. <laughs> Me too. I've been it. listening to
5: it on loop. <laughs> I I didn't realize this though. I, I've been getting blamed a lot on TikTok for people's failed relationships.
0: <laughs>
5: <laughs> some some dude some dude commented, I had to pay 18 years of child support because of this song. <laughs>
2: So tell us about collaborating together and creating together. Like, so what, when did that happen exactly? And tell us, just, you know, fill us in on it.
5: It Happens all the time, doesn't it? I mean, (laughs) it's sort of an ongoing collaboration. It never stops. The common thread is uh, Francis Dunner. He
4: is. Francis is is the one who, uh, 15 years ago, I wrote... A record with Francis Dunnery. He's this crazy prog rock guitarist, producer, songwriter, just angelic voice, super talented. And we had been on Atlantic Records together. So he produced my first solo album. And he also, as a result, the glue, you know, the glue that keeps us all together through the years keeps Francis in my life. It it intersects with Edwin Turing many years ago as well. and And so Francis is this guy that's sort of just out there, super talented, waiting in the wings to do wonderful things. And so as, you know, uh, years go by and I think about re-releasing this record, um, I'm doing what most adequate lead vocalists, which I will you know, probably exaggerate and say I'm an adequate lead vocalist. And there's an old Western philosophy that says uh, an adequate vocalist that is wise will call an amazing vocalist who is willing. And that willing focus becomes Edwin McCain because I have some great songs that I wrote with Francis. I love the album. It's called Snowman Melting. We're re-releasing it, but it needs a bump. It needs a jolt. And the jolt is, I got to get a couple known lead singers to help me out here. And and I've, I, I won't say who is number one or who is number two, but Edwin and Darius Rucker are at the top uh, duking it out because they they have nothing better to do than support the drummer. So, <laughs> but they, both uh,
3: both incredible vocalists. They're not just willing vocalists. Yeah, mm-hmm. no,
4: but they willing. This was the key, man. There's a million uh, great vocalists. None of them want to return my damn call except for <laughs> Edwin and Darius. So <laughs> well, they they both return my
3: call. And dude, old friends willing. are the best friends. Old friends yeah. are the best friends. <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. So we we re-record two the tracks and. What we come up with with Edwin is an energized, acoustic, cool as hell version of No Reason. We record in uh, Greenville, South Carolina and Nashville. And I just I'm so glad I picked the right person. And he said, yeah, thank you, Edwin, by the way. How do you like the song, Edwin?
5: (laughs) <laughs> I, dude, I it, So I, I love the message, but more than anything, it's just a continuation of a uh, lifelong friendship. I mean, there was only one answer to the question, but, but, but as soon as I, as soon as I was listening to it, I was like, man, this, this reeks of Francis and I was like, Francis, can I write this with you. Cause like we both love him and he's got, you know, he's got a certain melodic sensibility that only he, you know, it just it's instantly recognizable, right? And then um, the, the obviously the subject matter of the song, and and given the current climate, um, you know, man, I'm all about it. Like we, like everybody needs to just take a breath and be loved and and be kind. And uh, that's the that's that's what this song was saying to me. So. Of course. I would, you know, it was no no question. And but, I mean I feel like we you know we play together. I feel like we play at least three or four gigs a year together no matter what. You know, it just it's a I mean it's a it's an extension of just what we always do. We're always playing together.
4: Yeah, this is the truth and we we never stopped. So we've been hanging out backstage backstage Side stage. Uh we stay out of the bars now for the most part, Edwin and I, but we've been hanging out around the stages together for for so many years that it almost feels like you're if you're not on the same bill, it's like, where's Edwin? We'll be right. doing a charity gig and you know, wherever, Connecticut, New York, Florida, South Carolina. Hey, where's that? Where's Sister Hazel? Where are they today? <laughs> yeah. Are they supposed to yeah. be here? There's just some names that need to be there every time.
5: Do you yeah. know I I for years, and I've seen this actually, even like you know, in on the interweb where all misunderstandings uh, begin. There was a big misunderstanding that I was actually in the band that I was that I would see I would see former member of Hootie and the Blowfish, and I and I was like, you know, what? I don't really feel like I'm gonna correct that. I mean,
0: because I guess I wasn't ever. I wasn't ever
5: officially in the band, but I wasn't not in the band either.
2: <laughs> you don't need to correct anybody on that one, right? I would
5: say I would say I met, I have a strong case for common law membership. I mean,
3: <laughs> are you going to sue for some royalties?
5: No, uh, no, no, no. Just want to rock.
3: Listen, the collaborative, the collaboration that's gone on for so many years, and and w- that took place in in you know northeastern southern rock is so beautiful. And and uh, working with friends, there's nothing better, man. There's nothing better than working year after year with with people that you love. That's true.
4: Yeah, we're blessed in that way because it's 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 a tough business going down the road the glory days of course will always be remembered just for that you work your ass off you 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 get success and you're so grateful but it gets harder years down the road to keep it together we all go through these lulls where you're just fighting to get a return call from a record label or a radio station through all those years you know we all knew what was up we all were finding ourselves on stages together and just sort of on the side, no matter if there was only 500 people or 50,000, more so the 500 saying, you know what, we get paid to make music and this just does not suck. And we always had that high level of gratitude and people like that, I think stick together. The ones that don't see that or understand it, I think they end up in in darker places. So I'm, I'm glad we stuck it out through the lean years and, who, who knows, maybe they're getting leaner.
2: <laughs> well, you also listened to what David Crosby told you, which was stick to the music, right? That's yeah. why you're here. That's what you love. That's what you're, that's gonna, you know, keep you up late at night playing, coming up with songs and 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 staying out of that other part, but yet continuing. Like you said, 500 people didn't matter. You're still getting to do it. So beautiful. This This yeah. relationship is so cool. You guys, this is so great. <laughs> I wish I wish uh, David
4: Crosby would have said, "If your singles not doing so well, just send some people to Jackson, Mississippi.
2: (laughs) Your cousin, maybe. (laughs) Rebuy some records, resell them again. Just street team it. Tally up all of your friends and family's cash, and that was an Edwin
3: McCain original move (laughs) that that I respect.
5: But you know, honestly, if you ask anybody in Atlantic, they'll tell you, man, I was, I was." I was a whore at radio. I would do anything, like whatever. (laughs) Well, your back was up against
3: the wall, right, man? You, you. They said if you, if your next product doesn't sell, we're we're dropping you. And did you ever, you know, Bruce Springsteen when he recorded Born to Run was under the same pressure. Yeah, in 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 that and
5: and 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 once it actually happened, and I was out there making the rounds at radio, I literally. I was, I would do whatever. I didn't care. I mean, I was playing hot dog parties at pools and like (laughs) drive through weddings at Krispy Kreme donuts. And yeah, it just, it didn't, it didn't matter. And I, and I made so many friends uh, throughout those times at radio that, I still have them, right? Like I did the AFC championship. I sang the anthem at the AFC championship game five years ago for the Patriots. And um, I I called John Ivy. He was a big radio programmer in Boston. And I called him after the fact. And I said, look, man, just so you know, it's not lost on me that I wouldn't have been singing the anthem at this game if it wasn't for you, like back in the day, putting some kids' music on – the airwaves in Boston. And it's why even now when I go and play in Boston, it sells out. I mean, that's crazy to me. And, and, it, and, but I will tell you the, the part of the ethic that we all had was just be nice. It's not hard to be nice. Right. It's in, and, and you know, we can, we can leave here today with this venue or this radio station or this promoter going, man, those are the easiest people I've ever worked with. And I look forward to seeing them again, and and right there is the thing that'll keep you around for That's thirty a, in, years in any
3: business. Yeah, in any yeah. in any aspect of life. What you just said is an amazing lesson. You can be difficult, or you could be kind, and uh, yeah, and, it, and
2: people want to work with you again if you're kind, if you show up, if you're respectful, and it's, um, Edwin. Tell me if this is true. I heard this a story that you crashed a wedding, and and oh, yeah. <laughs> and sang got on stage and sang your song.
5: So I got an email from this this girl <laughs> who her she was like, we've been watching you since the Blind Tiger in Greensboro, and anybody that can cite that, like, of court they they were there early the fans, right? First months of our band, and so. Uh, can you come and sing at my sister's wedding? And I, I didn't, I didn't know where I was going to be. And then it turned out I was actually in Charleston on the same day. And I hadn't responded to the email because I just didn't know if that was going to work out. So all my schedule kind of those clouds opened, and I was like, I'm going to be able to do this. And so I just drove over to where it was and I got to the reception ahead of time and I talked to the band leader and I was like, Hey, I know you don't know me, but can I plug in and just sing this song? It's a first dance song. You know, they, they don't really even know no. I'm going to be here. And, um, and I thought I was like a nice, sweet thing to do. But, uh, when the bride and groom came in the reception and she saw me like she Freaked out, like not kind of freaked out, <laughs> like hyperventilated, <laughs> fell down, like had oh to be, no, so <laughs> had to be taken in a different room, like to get it together, <laughs> and and the and the and all, and all of a sudden this like nice thing I thought I was doing I was like oh my god I just screwed up their whole
2: life. Uh, did, did you get, get to perform
3: a, the song for the them? husband?
5: The husband was looking at me like dude, like what the hell. <laughs> and i was like ah ah, and so so she they went and she got it together and they came out and i sang the song and they danced and it turned out to be totally cool and everybody was super happy and i'm friends with them to this day and i've seen them recently and they have a, a son now so it all turned out good but the funniest part of the entire day was her her father came up to me after after I sang, and was like, "Do I have
3: to pay you?" <laughs> I was like, "This is gonna break the bank. This yes, was not sir. in my you budget." Don't "Have
5: to pay me? I need three shrimp cocktails and a glass of unsweetened tea and we'll I mean, that says paranoid. it all. He like, he was pale. He was like, "Oh my god, I can't. I can't take any more. Any more invoices." <laughs>
3: But your music makes people happy, man. You know, like that that stuff, I I think that's behind all the, the commerce and success is like you, you get on stage and you make people happy and there's nothing better.
2: So tell us that when is the re-release coming out of, of snowman melting? We just,
3: yeah,
4: we just put it out. So it's available on Spotify or wherever you stream your music, uh, of course. So the full album with its 13 original tracks, which Francis Dunnery plays a lot of the instruments on that. And um, uh, Edwin's new track and Darius's uh, new track as well are on their uh, bonus. No extra charge, people. The same price. Can't wait.
2: Yes. <laughs> well, this Guys, was an absolute yeah. treat. Thank you for taking so much time with us. I mean, it was a, it, such a joy meeting you both and and this friendship is really beautiful. Thank you so much.
3: Thank y'all. Congrats on the new album. I can't wait to listen to it. Thanks y'all. That was super cool, right?
2: So great. I mean, really honest, two people whose music I, I know but knew nothing about them individually. Like I could sing along to all their songs but didn't know anything about their stories. Um And I just feel like I—I I, I mean, I always get the warm fuzzies when you see those kind of long-term friendships, relationships, support systems that they've got—they got, go back what, forty years, late late eighties.
3: Right, and Jim, when Hootie was getting signed by Atlantic, said, "We're not going to sign unless you sign my buddy." Like that, you don't see that very often. No, you know,
2: no, uh, no, and-, and yeah, just great, just great stories. I mean, really cool guys.
3: And I love how they had separate paths because Hootie, he said one, one minute we were playing frat parties and then six months later they were selling 5 million albums, whereas Edwin was about to get dropped. And they right. said, if your next product, your next song isn't a killer, um, you're done. So he wrote, um, I'll be like out of that, it must have been out of that, like, this oh my is my God. last chance, man,
2: you know? And the, that story, I mean, i getting... All of his family getting all of his, the last oh. psh, draining the bank account, draining his manager's bank account, sending everybody all over to just buy albums buy records. Um, I always
3: thought of that. Have you ever thought of like sending people to the movie theater and just like, I, I'm going to put ten, or, 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 or telling them to watch your show.
2: Yes. Yes. Always, always. And I've always done that for friends and for like buying extra tickets for movies or thing. You know what I mean? But you, you always think you're like, okay, I just bought 10 tickets. Is that going to make a big difference? But right. in this case, he said it was enough to move the needle, just move the needle. And then getting, getting the, the song on Dawson's Creek. Because, th- and yeah. that was the beginning. I remember that show being one of the first of its kind that would put, you know, pop pop music on, and then pe- then they would market the albums, you know, like for the sh- for the series. Because Grey's Anatomy then went on to do it, and huge bands, um, bands became huge. You know, right, when, I remember you,
3: uh, when REM was on um, nine hundred two and the summer right, I was doing it. Right, so that um, was a
2: ni- that was a real nineties trend that yeah. started by getting it getting those on TV shows that had such high visibility. Um, anyway, that was great. Thank you all. I always love the music. I mean, I'm kind of in awe because it's just not something I understand. It's not something I can do. I, I don't know that world, and it's so music.
3: Cool. Music becomes part of your DNA, right? Totally. So when you're talking to the guy from from Hootie who wrote those songs, it's like I grew up with you. Your your music is part of me. Yes, you know?
2: yes. All of my memories. All of my right. Know. I knew
3: exactly where I was when yes. I heard "Hold My Hand" uh, yeah. that first time. But um, thank you, everybody, for listening. And Christine, great to see you.
2: Good to see you. We'll we'll uh, be back uh, in a week. Bye. One week. Fun.
3: Great guests. Have a great week, everyone.
2: Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe
1: and give us five stars.
3: And please follow us on Instagram at HeyDudeThe90sCalled. See you next time.
0: Did we just invent California?
6: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com
2: today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right
6: here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos.